In Canada, one woman is killed in a violent act every other day. The spike in domestic violence that began during the pandemic is still on the rise. Numbers in Canada have leapt by 27 percent since 2019, and in Israel, the situation is just as critical, with 16 Israeli women already murdered this year. True to its mission, CHW is stepping up to support emergency services in Canada and Israel at this critical time. Help CHW empower victims of domestic violence by supporting the 27-hour SOS crowdfunding campaign. From August 22nd to 23rd, every dollar will be quadrupled when you donate online at chwsos.ca. I come from an athlete family in Damascus, Syria. My sister Yusra and I grew up in a swimming pool. In 2015, the pool is bombed and we flee the war. That's the trailer for long-distance swimmer Sarah Mardini, a new documentary by filmmaker Charlie Way Feldman. The Canadian director spent four years following Mardini, a Syrian refugee and Olympic athlete who became famous after hopping out of a boat in the middle of the Aegean Sea to help pull everyone on board to Greece. Way Feldman has made a career out of telling dramatic true stories from around the world, and it is fitting since she herself has a global identity. With a Chinese mother and a Jewish father, she was raised in Jamaica, Vietnam, and Montreal, and now splits her time between Canada and the United Kingdom. What has underpinned it all, she says, is her Judaism, something that has given her a borderless identity. You know, I had a Canadian passport, but that didn't mean much. I had this French school, which was like a weird relationship, Vietnam, where I would never become, you know, they don't allow citizenship or whatever for no matter how long you've lived in the country. So I guess Judaism gave me this like borderless identity that I could dive into. And the whole principle of learning how to exist as a diaspora and being able to exist as a diaspora was just hit home for me at a time where I was looking for that sense of belonging. I'm Rivka Campbell, host of Rivkush, the CJN podcast spotlighting incredible Jews of color. I'm filling in for Ellen Besner today. And this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. This past spring, Charlie Way Feldman's latest film debuted at the Hot Docs Festival in Toronto. I was able to sit down with her for a lengthy, fascinating conversation about her cultural identity, her new film, and what it's like growing up Jewish in Vietnam like how any Jew who visited was told they had to visit the Feldmans in Hanoi. Have a listen. Beth David Hebrew School is now accepting new students. One of Toronto's most dynamic, egalitarian, conservative congregations is offering personalized Hebrew lessons, hands-on learning, exciting field trips, and small group activities, all with a hot dinner included. This is Jewish exploration that will last your children a lifetime. Classes run weekly on Monday nights from 5 to 7.15 p.m. starting September 18th. To learn more and enroll, visit BethDavid.com or email Adina, that's A-D-I-N-A, at BethDavid.com. So tell me about you, because off camera, if you will, off off mic, if you will, yeah. we started discussing because I had asked Charlie how to pronounce her name and go ahead and tell the, the story about the pronunciation of your name and a little bit about your background growing up. 
Great. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, I'm really happy to be here. And it's just one of those identities that gets a little bit, it's a little confusing to talk about in a casual conversation. So it's kind of nice to be in a space where we can actually focus on that and just like uh, be among peers who also feel similar things. So I, I'm very excited to be here. Um, I am, I was born in Montreal. My father's Jewish Canadian. My mother is from Hong Kong, um, converted um, before we were born so that, you know, the family would be okay with the whole intermarriage thing. At that time, we're talking about late 80s, Vietnam started to open up to non-Americans. So Canadians, Australians, all of that started to travel there as a, you know, seeing an opportunity before Americans could come. Um, and so we kind of landed there. Um, my parents separated and we ended up um, being raised by my father in Vietnam, going to a French lycée, which, you know, for those not familiar, like the French lycée is bent on assimilating whoever's there. So by the time I was 18 years old, we were, you know, I felt French for some <laughs> strange, wow. strange reason that baffles me to this day. <laughs> wow. Um <laughs> But yeah, um, and and as I was saying to Rivka, like I to you, Rivka, I, I just I my Chinese side is like a still a bit of an enigma to me. Like I don't speak Chinese. I identify strongly with Hong Kong and the struggles it's been through over the past few years, but I I don't have that the same tie I, I would say to my Cantonese side as I have to my Jewish side. This is your your background is so cool. So tell me a little bit more about because. You, you articulated that the Judaism is, is very important to you and is, you know, part of obviously of who you are. So how does that manifest itself? And, and did you find that you had any, because I speaking for myself, sometimes there's been struggles around me presenting as I do my children presenting as they do. Cause they are also, they are also, I like to say Heinz 57, a mixed bag of everything. And then some, and, you know, and really navigating the community and, and, and who I am in terms of how I fit in. So tell me, do you share any of that? Would you like to definitely definitely i mean when i heard about this podcast i was so excited because one of my projects has been to like like dream projects has been to publish a book with just photos being like jewish in the in, in 2023 you know like or whatever year do but it, just like this it. is what we look like you know yeah, um, do it. but i remember because i mean i grew up in a jewish diaspora community and very much you know i i would dip into the montreal jewish community which is very tight-knit but mm -hmm. you know in vietnam it was a kind of mishmash of like Jewish people from around the world, maybe, we were maybe a total of 40 people who would get together during high holidays. Um, That's more and, than I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had the a lot of Israeli travelers who would join in and, and things like that. Um, but there, there were, I mean, I grew up with like maybe two other Jewish kids who went to a different international school um, and kind of dipped in and out. But I remember going to a um, Passover Seder in Singapore and it was the first time I was introducing my husband to what Passover was and he was very nervous and we walk up and there's a sort of bodyguard outside and he's like what are you doing here and we're like well we're here for Passover and he looks at us and he's like are you Jewish and I'm like yes I am it's like where are you from Montreal we're in Montreal Kutsanuk oh 
And of course you say Kotsaluk and like he immediately was like, okay, that's legit. But you know, you have to go through these rounds wow. of testing and, and that kind of angst of like walking up to a kind of Jewish community diaspora event anywhere around the world. I always have this angst of like, oh, I'm going to have to go through those, like mm-hmm. those hoops, that mm-hmm. challenge again, you know, like, and, and that's yeah. really, that's really frustrating. And I think that it's become like a sort of cause for me to, you know, I tell my husband, it's, that is what I want to give my children is the confidence to walk into a Jewish community without feeling like they are other. Oh, I just got a chill when you were saying that. Yeah. Because I felt like I was standing right next to you. Yeah. And that feeling, I'm telling you, I work in the Jewish community. I'm often, and it still doesn't go away. It doesn't even go away when I come to my own place. Yeah. My own place of employment. I still, in my little bubble of the office, it's cool. It's when I have to go to a bigger event, I still have that feeling of, okay, who's going to ask me something? Yeah. Yeah. Because I find, I, I don't know if you feel this way too. Sometimes I have to, people are always testing me on my Judaism. You know, does she yeah. really know these things? And I'm thinking to myself, you probably don't know it. So you don't even know if I'm giving you the right answer or not. <laughs> totally. So do you find that sometimes? Yeah, definitely. And also because I didn't go to Hebrew school growing up and I didn't, I do have that insecurity. Oh, I don't know all these things, but like I, then I, you know, I spend time with my cousins who did go to Hebrew school and, and my family and, and in Montreal and I love spending time with them. But I, I noticed that for some reason, maybe because I felt that insecurity, I've just engaged with a lot of these things really, really deeply in a, a very international context. And when I go to some events, sometimes it's very like, let's go through the motions. And it's not necessarily like, let's like, you know, t- let's engage with it. Let's question it. Let's this, you know, right. the, the, the thing I'll get is like, oh, why are you being so deep about it? Why are you being so like intense about it? But I'm like, I guess I, I had to engage with it to find right. myself in, in some of this. And when you asked earlier, like, what is, what, what was my relationship with it growing up is like, uh, you know, I had a Canadian passport, but that didn't mean much. I had this French school, which was like a weird relationship, Vietnam, where I would never become, you know, they don't allow citizenship or whatever for no matter how long you've lived in the country. So, Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, you're always going to be a foreigner in Vietnam unless you are yeah. Vietnamese. And so I guess Judaism gave me this like borderless identity that I could that I could dive into. And the whole principle of learning how to exist as a diaspora and being able to exist as a diaspora was just hit home for me at a time where I was looking for that that sense of belonging. So let's let's talk a little bit about your work. Yes. Um, so I do want to talk about, um, you said in over 20 countries, please explain that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened in my 20s, I guess, because I, so I, I partnered with this um, production company that was just starting, and they were doing a lot of global films. And I just kind of was very, you know, a very yes woman at that time. You know, we've got this project in Nepal. Yes, we've got this thing in Myanmar. Sure, we've got this thing in China. Okay, like, can you go film in Guatemala? Okay, no problem. Um, uh, wow. And so just it just kind of happened that there was a point where I realized I was subletting my apartment for longer than I was actually living there. Living in it. And I just said, you know what, I'm giving up the apartment or the room in the apartment because it was London. Um, And I just 
lived out of a suitcase. And so after a few years of just like traveling around like that, I just spent another four years living out of a suitcase. Um, I was dealing with a lot of like um, heavy subject matter, um, a lot of Such trauma. As- I, you know, like human trafficking, um, what women like selling brides um, between Vietnam and China, the earthquake in Nepal in 2014, right. the Myanmar elections, which that was a bit less traumatic. How do you cope with that? Because while you, you know, people can say, well, this is what she does. She's a professional, blah, blah, blah. But you are, you are hearing and seeing tragedy and even and recording it for history but how does that affect you charlie as a person like it was definitely um it took its toll on me and i you know i i i kind of operated on this rhythm of like overwork burnout overwork burnout and um and then i finally decided to slow things down a bit and that's when i um, started the last documentary, which was um, just out at Hot Docs, where I met your colleague, Michael. So that's a nice segue. I don't know the story. Mm-hmm. So please tell me the genesis of this documentary and, and who she is and why. What led you to do this? Um, so the genesis for me was hearing that a 23-year-old um, a volunteer on the shores of Europe had been arrested and and, and accused of human trafficking, money laundering, being a spy, and could face 20 years in prison. So I, I sort of looked at this and I thought, what is going on? This is crazy. And then my okay. producers um, actually knew Sarah Mardini um, and her story before um, she got arrested. So Sarah Mardini has this incredible backstory. She was a champion swimmer in Syria, along with her younger sister, Yusra. And the two of them were coached by their father to kind of compete in the Middle East, mostly at the time. And when the war kind of really hit close to home for them, they decided to escape. And during their escape, uh, during the crossing from Turkey to Greece, Mm -hmm. the boat that they were on, like an inflatable dinghy, started to sink. And as it was sinking... They had no choice. They jumped into the water and they swam for three and a half hours to keep the boat afloat and to kind of keep steering it in the right direction. So um, they became incredibly famous for this story. They became probably the most famous refugees in Europe at the time. They made it safely to Germany and um, they their story went viral and has since been made into a Netflix film called The Swimmers. Um, And so that is the dramatized, like the fictionalized version of their backstory. What was even more incredible is after doing this, the younger sister, Yusra, decided to continue swimming and she got into the very first refugee Olympic team um, and competed both in Rio in 2016 and in Tokyo in what became 2021. Um, And so that is also part of this fiction film which is obviously a very feel-good film about these two incredible sisters. Sarah could no longer compete. She was the older sister. She could no longer compete. And she was um, injured from her crossing, and she decided, okay, I'm going to go back to the shores of Europe, and I'm going to help people who are making the same crossing I made. And I'm going to be an Arabic translator, a rescue swimmer, and just give blankets and, and water on the shoreline. 
And she was doing this when she got arrested. And so at the time when I got involved, Sarah Mardini was in prison. And it was like, we didn't know how long she'd be held for. We thought, what the hell? How could she be accused of human trafficking and all these things? And very quickly, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International looked into it um, and said, this is bogus. This is part of a um, political you know, trend to call volunteers criminals in an attempt oh. to discourage people from volunteering, in an attempt to discourage people from coming because they may think that volunteers will help them on the other side. Wow. This is all like the long story. I can give the shorter version of this. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm like, you've drawn me in. Okay, cool. like, I'm just like, um, holy cow. Yeah, so Sarah was arrested along with um, uh, another volunteer, Sean Binder. Um, and they, um, after three and a half months and a lot of sort of um, pressure from the you know, outside world, they were released, but they were only released on bail. And at this point, I meet Sarah in person and I'm super moved by her. She's like this incredibly charismatic, intense, like young woman. She was 23 at the time, um, had lived many lives and sort of had this attitude of like, bring it on. <laughs> wow. Um, and <laughs> not only bring it on, but also like, you know, she 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 had escaped the war. She couldn't swim anymore. She almost drowned. She couldn't swim anymore. She went back to volunteer. She was arrested. And she was just like, I will not, my spirit will not be t- like affected Clearly, by this. Clearly, yeah, she will not be crushed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and wow. so I, I just realized I want to spend more time getting to know her. And I actually want this film to be as much about the political, you know, um, trend that was going on because that's important but very much about what this young woman was going through at this point in her life and and also to give her that you know to make it a collaboration as much as possible you know to kind of make it in in her voice raw and as raw as unfiltered as you know whatever we could we could do to to kind of bring out um different parts of her story that she felt hadn't been told before because she had, she had done many, a lot of public speaking about it before. So it was kind of like, why am I making her repeat something that everybody knows is out there? And there's a Netflix film. That was why we kind of needed the creative space and the time to, to really tell the story the way we wanted to, to do it justice and to do her journey justice. So, um, so, so we went the independent route to, for this film and, and really gave it the time that it needed. Yeah. Cause it was four years, yeah. four, four and a half years, a half years, which did sound like an extraordinary amount of time, but I understand just by what you said, why it was. Yeah. Was- we didn't know where the story was going. And initially we thought, you know what, they're out on bail and they're waiting for a trial. So what, maybe in a year we'll have a trial and the film will be over or in two years we'll have a trial. Mm -hmm. So we kept coming up with these schedules according to when this trial would happen. And then as time progressed, we just realized that trial is not coming. And if it is coming, which it did at the end of the film, it's not really a trial. It's just further delaying justice. Um, So this has been been released correct yes uh, well in uh, it's it's doing its festival circuit at the moment well you need to keep me posted on it definitely thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast mm-hmm. 
If you want to hear the full conversation, search for Rivkush wherever you listen to podcasts or visit the cjn.ca slash Rivkush. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia, Integrity, Community, Quality, and Customer Care. Thanks for listening. Jewish comedy legend Modi and Hasidic rapper Nisim Black are coming to Toronto to perform live at UJA's campaign launch on September 7th. Visit jewishtoronto.com to get your tickets today. Don't miss Modi and Nisim Black on September 7th. Go to jewishtoronto.com for your ticket today.